Charles Darwin was born 210 years ago Tuesday on February 12, 1809. And in recent years, his birthday has increasingly been celebrated as International Darwin Day, an annual opportunity to celebrate the principles that guided Darwin's life, perpetual curiosity, scientific thinking, and a hunger for truth. Values that resonate deeply with our UU fourth principle of a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, our fifth source of reason and science. And relatedly, one tragedy of the ongoing creation versus evolution debate is that coming to terms with Darwin's theories of natural selection and common descent, those were among the greatest intellectual challenges of the late 19th century. But we live in the early 21st century, long past the point at which the basic tenets of Darwin's thought became simply basic science. And one reason it's significant to celebrate Darwin Day in a UU congregation is that both sides of Darwin's family were largely Unitarian. It's, while it's true that Darwin was baptized in an Anglican congregation, attended an Anglican boarding school, and was married by an Anglican priest, it's also the case that growing up, both Charles and his siblings attended the Unitarian chapel with his mother, and the liturgy used in his wedding to Emma Wedgwood was, quote, adapted to suit the Unitarians, as we do. So... <laughs> Uh, Relatedly, some of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears were among the earliest religious leaders to embrace the paradigm-shifting implications of Darwin's discoveries, that we humans are not a little lower than the angels, but merely a little higher than the apes, uh, with whom we share a common ancestor. We now know on the DNA level that a mere 1.23% difference separates us humans from the chimpanzees. 1.23% difference on the DNA level. We humans are not uniquely special creations. We are one among many species in the animal kingdom, deeply interconnected with the other forms of life and the varied ecosystems of this planet. As our UU seventh principle affirms, we are called to practice respect for the interdependent web of all existence, of which we too are deeply a part. This year's Darwin Day sermon is inspired by a book published last year by Randall Fuller, a professor of American literature at the University of Kansas. I don't know if Dr. Fuller is a Unitarian. He may just be this, there's this kind of stereotype of uh, quite a few English professors who are obsessed with the transcendentalists, so that may just be the case, or maybe he is a Unitarian. Uh, regardless, when I discovered he'd published this book that explores the history of how Darwin's On the Origin of Species was interpreted especially by our transcendentalist forebears like Bronson Alcott and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and the child welfare reformer Charles Brace and the abolitionist Franklin Sanborn, all of whom were Unitarians. I was like, thank you. Uh, Did you write this book for me? Uh, I will read it either way. But let me first set the stage a little of what was happening around November 24th, 1859, when Charles Darwin published his landmark book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. For just a few points of comparison, 1859 was also the year that Charles Dickens, also a Unitarian, uh, published uh, or released A Tale of Two Cities in a serialized weekly format. 
Uh, it's the same year that George Eliot's first novel, Adam Bede, came out, as well as the year that John Stuart Mill published his quite influential political book on liberty. And speaking of politics, in late 1859, when Darwin's book came out, keep in mind that the U.S. was only a little more than a year away at that point from the opening shots of the U.S. Civil War on April 12, 1861. Part of why that matters for our story today is that all of the Unitarian forebears we'll be reflecting on were involved um, heavily in the movement for the abolition of slavery. For instance, of the so-called Secret Six who helped um, fund and supply John Brown's raid on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry that's just down the road a piece, as we said growing up. Of those secret six, five were Unitarians, two were Unitarian ministers. One was a non-subscribing Presbyterian, which just means he didn't pay his dues. Um, Don't do that, no. (laughs) John Brown's raid uh, happened in mid-October 1859, and Darwin's book was published a little more than a month later in late November. So keep those two dates in mind when I tell you um, soon of a New Year's Eve gathering at Franklin Sanborn's house. Um, he uh, He had borrowed a copy of Darwin's book and introduced on the origin of the species um, for the first time to his three guests, Brace, Alcott, and Thoreau. All four strongly supported John Brown, and Sanborn in particular was both one of the secret six and had introduced uh, Brown to Alcott and Thoreau uh, a year earlier. On that note, Brown had been hanged just less than a month earlier on December 2nd, and Sanborn was quite nervous uh, as one of the members of the Secret Six. I think he went to Canada a total of three times, hoping not to get arrested. So Brown, because he thought he would be so successful, had not burned like any of the notes that connected him to his co-conspirators and all of that. So the struggle for racial justice was very much at the forefront of their minds and served as this powerful lens through which they initially reflected on Darwin's ideas. If you read Origin closely, Darwin very intentionally focused on plants and animals, uh, which itself was controversial enough. He was aware of the implications for humans, but he's like, let's just start with plants and animals, right? Uh, Uh, Only in a single place at the end of Origin does he gesture toward the implications for human beings. He says, in the distant future, which isn't true, he published, you know, Uncommon Descent just a few years later, but he says, in the distant future, I see open fields for far more important researches, light will be thrown on the origin of man and its history. But for the anti-slavery activists, in the meantime, the implications were clear. By saying that, uh, by hinting that all humans are biologically related, Darwin's work seemed to refute once and for all this idea that African-American slaves, enslaved folks, were a separate inferior species. They embraced this scientific support that we are all part of the same human family and needed to treat each other with dignity because of that. But as they further reflected on Darwin's work, they also realized a more discomforting truth that Darwin's theories also posed enormous threats to their faith in God, as well as their trust in America as a country divinely chosen for the regeneration of the world. As the saying goes, evolution giveth and evolution taketh away. 
It's interesting to consider, though, how such radical ideas began to spread. In this case, it really was one particular copy of Darwin's book that had this unusually large impact on multiple cultural influencers. Uh, we're more than a century um, before, at this point, in the information age that we are so deeply a part of. So it can be easy to forget how books weren't instantly available everywhere or on a tablet at the click of a button and you... Um, couldn't get the reviews instantly on Twitter or on a blog, right? Like you had to wait for these things. This particular copy of Darwin's book to which I'm alluding is housed today at Harvard University, so you could go visit it if you wish. Darwin himself had sent it to a man named Asa Gray, a Harvard professor who's considered the most important botanist of the 19th century. Dr. Gray lent that copy, which he had immediately read and heavily annotated, to Charles Brace, one of those Unitarian ancestors that I uh, mentioned earlier, an abolitionist who happened to be a cousin of Gray's wife, and he brought that copy to the New Year's Day party at Sanborn's house, where Bronson Alcott and Thoreau were also guests. Uh, a little bit further context, um, Thoreau's Walden had been published six years before that in 1854. And of the many details and layers to this story, to just give you one of the anecdotes of what, why Thoreau said yes to that New Year's Day party, it was said he came because he had nothing better to do. He came because he liked to banter with Alcott and play the wise counselor to Sanborn, and he came because he was hungry. To share with you some of the reactions to these new ideas, Sanborn was deeply appreciative of Darwin's ideas, especially, again, the implications for abolitionism. And he soon wrote an enthusiastic letter along those lines to the renowned um, abolitionist and Unitarian minister Theodore Parker. Brace responded to the book on an even deeper level, soon claiming to, and I guess it's true, he was telling everyone, I've read the book 13 times. Uh, he latched onto Darwin's teaching in particular about the role the environment plays in shaping the development of species. So, and for um, Brace, it was particularly about his work with the Children's Aid Society. He became deeply convicted even more that, the, you know, how can we allow some children to be raised in a ghetto and some children to be raised with privilege? How can we tolerate that? Thoreau was still further impacted on yet one more level. He was already a fan of Darwin, stretching back almost two decades earlier to reading Darwin's travel log, The Voyage of the Beagle. And in 1860, Thoreau would grapple with Origen's ideas as thoroughly and insightfully as any American of the period. By the end of January, when pirated editions of the book became available, pirating is not something that started, you know, just with uh, DVDs and VHS, right? Uh, he actually secured a pirated copy from the Concord Library and began taking copious notes. So publishing was complicated back then. You know, Darwin had been published in England, so it was actually a pirated copy at the library that, that Thoreau read. Uh, Thoreau and Darwin approached nature in similar ways. They would both spend hours observing nature as well as recording and tracking these observations on, over time. So long before Excel, they had these kind of elaborate spreadsheets. Uh, uh, Thoreau's even uh, been used today by climate scientists. You know, these close, detailed records he kept around Walden Pond are useful today as reference points for climate change. 
And reading Origen, Thoreau discovered someone else who understood nature as he did, abounding and vibrant, each niche swarming, each interstice filled with life, each living thing a part of constant change, a participant in struggle and development brimming with meaning and significance. The intimacy and intricacy of their writing reminds me of the specificity that often characterized the late Mary Oliver's poem, not just thinking in general, but thinking in the specific in the particular. Uh, perhaps most famously in this excerpt of her poem, The Summer's Day, uh, she didn't write about grasshoppers in general. Her poetry emerged from being enraptured with something in particular that she would spend time with. She wrote, who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous, complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. Along those lines, I should add that as much as Thoreau's writing often overflows with this ebullient celebration of nature's beauty, part of why he loved Darwin is that Darwin was also honest about what Thoreau witnessed, the fullness and uh, dual nature of, of nature, that it wasn't just a beauty. But Darwin wrote powerfully about how nature was characterized by a struggle among species as an engine of evolution, what Tennyson called nature red in tooth and claw. That truth resonated with Thoreau as accurate about nature as he observed it in contrast to these lofty ideals about nature that he often heard discussed in these parlors, you know, outside of nature. So uh, he was actually in nature and so was Darwin. Emerson, by comparison, neither studied Darwin's writings as thoroughly as Thoreau, nor did he fully accept the full implications of the Darwinian paradigm shift. Instead, Emerson read Darwin as he read most other authors, that is, narcissistically. Uh, dipping into the book like a bee collecting pollen, uh, flipping pages back and forth, primarily seeking inspiration for his own essays. I should also add that by no means were all of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears supporters of Darwin. Of the four Unitarians present that New Year's Eve and uh, the New Year's Day in 1860, Bronson Alcott was by far the most negative. As Alcott understood it, Darwin's proposals reduced human life to chemistry, to mechanical processes, to vulgar materialism. I can hear some of the humanists in the congregation thinking, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, for him, though, they portrayed a world destitute of spirit. Darwin began with plants and animals, which in Alcott's opinion was precisely the wrong approach. He was one of those in-the-armchair uh, theorists. And for him, all questions of existence were to start from above with God, with the ideal. But that was not the only way to view Darwin's worldview, as we have already seen reflected in Thoreau. To say a bit more, let me return full circle to Dr. Asa Gray, uh, the professor whom Darwin personally mailed a copy of his book, that same book that he lent to his cousin Charles Brace, who brought it to that New Year's Day party. Gray was almost certainly the first American to read Origin in its um, entirety, and in reviewing um, Darwin's book, he tried to emphasize how grateful he was for the way Darwin saw the world. For even as Darwin's ideas challenged his Episcopal faith, he so appreciated how Darwin's book brought the world to life, how it made it 
pulse with meaning and significance, everything that he looked around and saw. Darwin demonstrated with close scientific rigor that the world did not magically appear one day spoken into being. As we know even more so today, we are part of this 13.7 billion year old universe story that continues to evolve. In that spirit, I'll conclude with the final paragraph of Darwin's 1859 book on the origin of species. Whereas many scientific texts are often not well written, it's just true, I'm sorry, uh, and become obsolete after new discoveries are made, Darwin's books have been widely praised for the beauty of his prose and for being well worth revisiting even years later. So I invite you to consider anew these words from the conclusion to On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. Note that Darwin begins by naming things we often perceive as only or solely negative, then shows how those precise things power the engine of evolution. In his words, from the war of nature... From famine and death, the most exalted object that we are capable of conceiving, uh, the production of higher animals directly follows. So the war of nature, things killing each other, right? From famine, from death. He's saying out of that, the production of higher animals directly follows. He then adds that famous line, because so many people, again, like Alcott, were seeing Darwin negatively. He said, there is a grandeur in this view of life. He's like, don't miss this. There is a grandeur in this view of life. He says, whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, right? One-celled organisms, prokaryotic, eukaryotic, all the way up to us, right? From so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful, most wonderful have been and are being evolved. Now, some of you have heard the um, riff that I'm about to do before. Uh, and in case, I actually think, if you actually remember this, I actually think I've, yeah, I've won. <laughs> That's good. Others of you are new. So I think some of these things that are really important, I do from time to time, because I think they're that important. And, and what this is about, the Darwin is, I think, deeply connected to, is the decenterings the that I think we humans uh, profoundly have to wrestle with as we think about the intellectual history of our, of our species. Uh, so to, to quickly think about that, I, I usually start with Copernicus. So you know, to think that it used to be more intellectually sustainable to make an argument that we humans were the center of life, the universe, and everything. That literally it was all about us. That's what we used to think. Some people still think that. They're wrong, in my opinion. Uh, the... Uh, Because to my mind, going back 500 years, 1545, uh, Nikolai Copernicus published a book called On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres. And that showed that, I mean, at that time, it was more about the solar system, right? But that people used to think that Earth was the center of life, the universe, and everything. And Copernicus showed that we're the third rock from the sun. We now know it's worse than that. <laughs> that we're, we're at the center. So the Milky Way galaxy, you've all seen that, right? It's the spiral galaxy. And we're not just the third rock from the sun. We're on the periphery of the Milky Way galaxy, which is one, you know, Carl Sagan used to always say billions and billions, Right. But it's actually worse than that, right? It's trillions now. We know that it's uh, we're our galaxy, not our solar system, is one of more than two trillion galaxies in the universe, right? So Copernicus deeply decentered our planet, Earth. 
Uh, Darwin, uh, fast forward to the mid-19th century, decentered our species, right? Showing that we aren't the one most important thing. We aren't a little lower than the angels. We're a little higher than the apes uh, and deeply interconnected. And, uh, and we know things... Well, I'll get to that in a second. Uh, the, um, so Copernicus, Darwin... so. Uh, Copernicus decentering our planet, Darwin decentering our species, Freud uh, interpretation of dreams and others. A lot of problems with Freud, but one of the things I think he did really profoundly well is to decenter our conscious mind, to show us how deeply what we think are our motivations for doing stuff often aren't. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I can refer you to a therapist who can uh, make that more obvious to you. <laughs> uh, so uh, trust me on that one. Uh, what you, the reason you think you're doing things is not always the case. Uh, decenter our conscious mind. Um, we can just fast forward just another few years to Einstein's, you know, uh, his miracle year, 1905, right? So that we learn profoundly that space and time are relative to each other, right? So decentering even that, and I don't think quite as impactful as the other four figures, but I like to use as a touch point as well, um, Hubble. Um, just to think about that Hubble deep field. If you've never seen that, Google image it later. Just to, to start to realize just how deeply... Um, small we are in the grand scheme of things. Um, and, and so there's a lot to say about all that, but the last, well, I'll move to the conclusion by saying that to me, our great struggle today is not evolution, but it's a related struggle around climate science uh, and of really reordering our, ourselves in the grand scheme of things and the way we live as much as people were really challenged to be doing uh, around evolution, really changing how we think, changing how we act, um, or, I mean, if you're not sure, the, the, one of the best books I've read on this, Elizabeth Colbert, New Yorker writer, wrote a book called The Sixth Extinction, you know, writing how profoundly you're tracing the history of the five mass extinctions on this planet and just, you know, saying really clearly, we can cause a sixth one if we're not careful and we're not being careful. Uh, and so, um, it can be, if you start to think about these radical decenterings, it can, it can make us feel really small, and we are in some ways. But to me, the flip side of that is if anything I do right now doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, the grand scheme of things doesn't have to matter in the right now, and I can powerfully create love and meaning and connection you know, irrespective of that. So our invitation or our choice, if we decide that, is to continue our journey in love, to care for one another, to care for this earth, to make sure it stays here for future generations. And whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.